And let us pray. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, limited by your word and sacraments, may shine forth with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God now and forever. Amen. To open, I want to quote from a lengthy reading. It says, We American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus. And if I would have written this, I would have put, who looks like Kenny Loggins. And evidently, the last time I said that, that illustration uh, uh, was lost on some people. And uh, I forgot to send a text. I have pictures that are identical from Kenny to what people have on their walls of Jesus. Uh, I'll I'll try to do that because I know it's important. But, (laughs) yeah, exactly. That was the comment the last time. Who is this? A nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced. Who wants us to avoid dangers, dangerous extremes. And who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. These words are from David Platt. He's the author of Radical. Uh, he was in Alabama. I think he's the pastor of uh, a clean Bible church now in Virginia. Um, and as he wrote, he was challenging the contemporary church to examine the Jesus we follow. So, and in part, we're going to do this today. The, the Jesus we follow, is it the Jesus of the Bible or is it a Jesus we have concocted? We have come to the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, uh, in, 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 as Luke has written and described, and he's been leading up to this very point. This becomes the turning point of the gospel. It's the high point. And it's marked by this same high point in each of the gospels, that uh, where this question, this inescapable question, is raised. Of who do you say that I am? Herod had this question uh, a couple of sections ago, and, and we, we uh, talked about that. But in response to, to uh, Herod's questions, where, um, where he wondered who this was who was doing all these things, Jesus responded with the feeding of the 5,000, which we talked about the last time we were together, which wasn't last week, but the week before. And in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus expressed in no uncertain terms his divinity, the power, that divine power which he possesses, and feeding of the 5,000 men, which we talked about that there were uh, women and children along, and who knows what the number might have been. Uh, there were a lot of people for a couple of uh, fish and a few loaves. Our lesson today in this passage, 9, 18 through 27, uh, shows us that once we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we then cling to the cross and die to this world. So we're going to ex- uh, explore this concept of, of receiving life through death. First is this confessing Christ, and an inescapable question. 
So verse 18 says, it, now, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. When in Mark's gospel, he tells us that they are in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is a town that's filled with paganism and idolatry. And I think it's interesting that of the geographical location and that information, that though that's what they're surrounded by, he's then asking them this very question of who do the crowd say that I am? Because there's confusion of who God is. That's why there's paganism. That's why there's idolatry. And so he's clarifying who he is. Now, their report was the same as Herod's. <clears throat> they gave him several answers, all noble answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Today, in our time, people do the same. They give him respect, yet they deny who he really is. Albert Schweitzer is a leading liberal theologian from back in the day who has had an influence, tremendous influence, on many in today's church. He wrote that Jesus doesn't really exist. Jesus didn't exist. But he was created by rationalism, endowed with life by liberalism, and clothed by modern theology in an historical garb. So, why would he even tell you that? Well, because this is real, that this liberal theologian did say this. He said a lot of things, and he's influenced many. So many, today, think that Jesus was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was, a, he was perhaps even, people would, might say, he's the best teacher. And he set a great moral example for us to follow. And it's hard to argue, are we supposed to follow Jesus? Yes, we are. But he's more than that. He is God himself who came in the flesh. But they get part of it right. But they've not acknowledged who he is as he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. But of course, the modern um, liberal church that's been influenced by such theologians as Schweitzer, uh, they're not alone. The, uh, I don't know if anybody watched that silly movie, Talladega Nights, but that um, Ricky Bobby, I'm pretty sure, was the character's name of Will Ferrell played, and he would pray to the baby Jesus, because that's how he liked to think of Jesus. Now, I, the, the movie is stupid, and there's no real point in that other than this goofy character, cre- he, he recognizes and relates to Jesus how it's comfortable for him. We do this. It's a natural thing. Many seem to have an image of Jesus as like this kind of vending machine Santa Claus in the sky. That, you know, we'll, we'll pray to him when we need something, we'll ask for something specific. But aside from that, I really don't have much to do with him. Jesus' inescapable question demands only one accurate and acceptable answer. But we must examine who Jesus is in order to answer the question. If he's going to ask us who Jesus is, who do we say he is, we, we have to know who has he said he is. So there's one acceptable answer. Verse 20. It says, Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. You see, now, now things have turned more personal. And you, you know how that goes when you, you, you're, you're hearing of a, uh, sometimes I see horrific news reports, and I figure out that's way off. So I kind of scan ahead and I go. But when you see a horrific news report and it's like local, that's a different thing. If there were a 
horrific news report about one of you, that would be a whole different thing from my perspective. Well, the closer it comes, the more of the reaction we have, the more personal this gets. And there was this kind of theoretical or a, or a uh, survey of, well, who, who do the crowd say I am? Now, that's easy enough to report on who they say, but who do you? This, this becomes, um, for, for the reader of the Gospels, but really, for the everybody, it boils down to this. Who do you say he is? At this time, there have been, um, the disciples would have been wondering and thinking on who he was since he calmed the storm, since they've seen all these miracles. They've heard, even in their presence, they've heard correct proclamation from demons who recognize Jesus as the Son of God. So at this time, though, it's, it's, they have to make a decision. And it's safe to say, though, Peter becomes a spokesman. Peter's their spokesman a lot. Peter says lots of things. And a lot of things that he says might not necessarily be attributed to all the disciples. But I think it's safe to say, as he says, they say. But he said, you are the, he, when he says, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ. And in another uh, uh, gospel, it would, there's a commendation of Peter at this point, that it wasn't, it wasn't in your nature that this was revealed, but it was by uh, my Father in heaven that you even know this, which we just read out of the First Corinthians passage about the gifts, which sounded like we were going to have a teaching on gifts, and there is a piece where this is related. We have a lectionary, so there are readings we do every week, and both of those were scheduled for last week's uh, readings, and... Uh, since the church was canceled, we used the same bulletins. The bulletins have the wrong date on them. But we're, we're doing exactly whatever was scheduled for last week. Same collect, the same readings. They don't necessarily always tie to what we're, being, what we're preaching on. And currently we're going through Luke, so where does this even tie? But even about the giving of the gifts, talked about by the Holy Spirit, these gifts are given. It's by the Holy Spirit that one can actually acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's for somebody to recognize that Jesus is who he says he is, the Holy Spirit is involved. And, and Peter was commended that this Holy Spirit had revealed that to him through another gospel. We're not missing that in this passage, but in another gospel it says that. But at this answer, at this one acceptable answer to this inescapable question, all other answers from all the crowds were put to shame. They were, they, they no longer matter. Here's the one true answer. The other answers couldn't come close describing accurately who Jesus is. Now, for us, we must recognize who he is and we must always declare the clear biblical truth of who Jesus is and then reject all these popular trends or notions. So, you know, there's been other Albert Schweitzer's. There's been this thing called the Jesus Seminar. And these people got together and they thought on these particular things that the gospel writers wrote. And then they would vote. And then they released a Bible. Um, I think it was the whole Bible, but certainly the gospels that were color-coded. So the color codes were like by a graph. So one color meant you could really believe they would have said this. This other color might have been highly unlikely that they, they, that, that Jesus would have said this. This color code, we don't think Jesus would have said this at all. Now, these 
for, for people who are not educated in this, and you look at their degrees and their diplomas and all that stuff, you're like, wow, they must know a lot more than we do. Now, for some reason, I have all kinds of doubt in the Bible. Well, there are all kinds of things written about the validity of the Bible and how accurate it is. God says that uh, in his word that he accomplishes his purposes. So I, I have to say, okay, I hear you, Mr. Jesus Seminar person, but the scriptures have revealed who he is, and I need to hold on to that. I need to proclaim the clear biblical truth of who Jesus is, and I need to then stand against these popular trendy notions. The effectiveness of the church for transformation is predicated on her accurate view of Jesus. The effectiveness of the church for transformation is predicated on her accurate view of Jesus. If we don't have a right view of who Jesus is, we may have a uh, either a shallow faith or really no faith at all in the sense that we're approaching out of our minds this thing of mentally understanding what you're saying, but there's no transformation happening in us because we don't understand who he really is. So we must stand firm to publicly um, and personally declare our allegiance to Jesus by declaring that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He was the one who was long awaited. He's the only Savior of the world. So the question comes to us, who do you say that he is? We are not able to form him into our image or how it is we want him to be because God has a plan. So by God's design is what we're going to look at next. And under that, I've got God's way may seem foreign. So in 22, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So the king has come. They were expecting a king. And the king has come. The kingdom has begun as Jesus began his ministry. And since, as, as we've been going through this book of Luke, we've seen both his humanity and his divinity. And as we've gotten to know him, we've seen this veiled disclosure as he's uh, revealed his divinity more and more, as he makes his divinity known among the people. But he's an unusual king, and he goes against what we even understand certainly what they were looking for or what they were expecting. They're looking for, finally, the king is here. There's going to be a military um, uprising, and there's going to be a a thwarting of, of Rome, and we'll be able to finally rest. But that's not what he did. It's plain from Scripture that he is the suffering servant, the suffering king uh, that Isaiah talked about. This king must die. There's first humiliation and then exaltation. It's kind of the nature and pattern we see for him. But it's also the nature and the pattern we see for us as we follow him. They certainly didn't expect or want a king who would die. But this is exactly what they needed. This is exactly what we needed. We needed a king who would die. In a world that reveres and celebrates power, it seems strange to gain victory through death. But this was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus is the son of David. He is also the son of man from Daniel 7, who will usher in this eternal kingdom and rule as Lord and King. But first, before he completes that final ushering in of the kingdom, for the, before the kingdom is consummated, but let's, let's say it has begun, it's been inaugurated, it's started, but before it's complete, 
he must suffer. And he's going to be rejected, then he's going to be killed, he's going to be buried, and after three days he's going to be raised to life. But this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. But I think on the human side, if we keep in mind that fully human, fully divine man, the the God-man, and where it talks, the Bible talks about how he was tempted as we are tempted. He, expre- he felt all the different kinds of emotions that we felt, feel. There, for him to know of this plan, yet go along with it, where he had subdued his power, had to be a challenging thing for him. And I think we take that for granted. But to hear of this plan would also have been challenging or hurtful or depressing for his friends his friends slash followers, these disciples, as he was telling them what's going on. But it's sin that demands that he carry out this plan. If it were not for sin, this wouldn't be happening. If it were not for sin, we wouldn't have Christmas. If it were not for sin, then we wouldn't need Easter or Good Friday and then Easter. But it's in this scene, it's in this plan where the law of God and the love of God meet, where judgment and grace kiss as the Psalms say. That means they really came together very closely. This was the plan which God's sovereign hand coordinated from the beginning to redeem his people. The challenges for him and his friends to hear this, um, yet go along with it, would be because this was not going according to their expectation. The plan seems foreign to them. For us, it can be very difficult to follow God's ways. It it can be difficult because sometimes God's ways are not at all like we expected His ways to be. We have our plans. We were expecting God to meet our plans. We were expecting God to do what we wanted Him to do. And you've no doubt heard people say, well, my God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't do this. You're like, well, if it's the God of the... Bible, then perhaps he would. Perhaps it's unlike what your plan has been. But the reality, when, this, when those things come, so are, is this a faith-rocking moment when those, when those times come, when we recognize that God's ways are not our ways, and they're hard to swallow and they seem foreign to us? If we have latched on to Jesus as a life enhancement product, come to Jesus, your life will get better. Then when we run into such a situation and we're not fit with the right set of glasses, and we've bought a false gospel, we're willing or tempted to toss him aside. I came to Jesus. My life's not getting any better. What the heck is this for? And, and you know, perhaps it's my buddy told me if, if, who lives a great life, if I just came to Jesus, things would straighten out. I've been following Jesus now. My life's getting harder. Well, if we saw him, this Jesus as an actual lifesaver during the storms of life, when trials come, you know, if, if you're thrown over the boat in humongous waves, you're probably not going to reject the lifesaver when it comes to you. You're probably going to cling to it. If you understood this is what he's for, you will cling to him during times where they're tough. It's understanding the true nature of Christ helps us walk out our faith on a very daily basis. Therefore, this God's plan, by God's design, uh, his way will challenge our instincts. So this is the point in the gospel where in Mark's account, it's where uh, Peter's indignation um, allows him to give Jesus a rebuke. 
And then Jesus responds to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Very strong words. All that's very strong. Peter felt very strongly when he basically yelled at Jesus. But Jesus is feeling pretty strongly when he says, get behind me, Satan. Because he knows that this is a, 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 a plan of the devil. It's not a plan of God. And this is just moments after he was commended for, being, for having this knowledge revealed to him by the Spirit of God. Peter responded to this fresh news out of his flesh. And sometimes we hear God's plan, his word or his ways, and we think, well, that, that just can't be right. That just can't be right. It doesn't make any sense. It's counterintuitive to our normal pattern of thinking, to our previous uh, habits, um, the way we've been conditioned to think, our determination of what's right and wrong. We don't understand and we say, that can't be right. But his ways are not our ways, is what the scripture says. So when those challenges come, and it's challenging our instincts, the thing we need to do is cling tighter and dig deeper. We need to understand what he's saying and why he's saying it. And perhaps we will, and perhaps we won't, but his ways are still going to be right and yours are still going to be wrong. I mean, it's just this is just the way it is. So this is bringing us through a dying process, a submission process. If So therefore, if we have said yes to him, if we can proclaim him as Lord and Savior, as if he is the Messiah, then we come to this next set of, of uh, section in, in scriptures. The way, the way our Bible has it laid out, we have these little man-made headings, and we come into this next section uh, in verse 23, which is death to self. And first we're going to look at death to a self-centered life. So in 23 he says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, this biblical truth turns that American dream Christianity thing on its head. This, this is the heart of the gospel. It's not that you have your best life now. It's not the prosperity gospel. It's not that you can heal yourself. It's not that if you just had enough faith, everything would happen your way and work out your way. This is the heart of the gospel. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. We die to self so that we might find life in him. And as we are finding death, then life, it's following that pattern that Jesus had. He he died, he, he suffered the humiliation, then exaltation. We suffer this death so that we can be raised to life in him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, As we embark upon discipleship, we surround ourselves, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. So in coming to Christ, we are united to Christ, but we're united to Christ in his death as well. He says, we give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end of an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. A beautiful quote. I use it a good bit. It needs to be used a lot. This concept of submission and dying to self is not what is popular to preach in our world today. But it's what we need because it's the heart of the gospel. So Jesus is telling his followers to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There are three things. What does it mean to deny yourself? And I think I could preach like six sermons just on this one topic. But we're going to have about like you know, three, three sentences. 
What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, we're, we're to give up our right to self-determination. We are to live as Christ directs. We are to cherish Jesus more than ourselves or our comforts or our desires. And that's why I think it can be preached on for a long time. Those few sentences pack a punch. Next is take up your cross. What does that mean in today's world? Well, these people knew that when you were taking up your cross, the cross was used for the purposes of killing. It was a tool for this crucifixion. They knew what it meant. This is what you got when you got the death penalty. So if there are death penalty states now, you know, would it, would it be, uh, uh, you, know, you know, pick up your syringe? You know, in, in our context, that doesn't make sense to us because that's a different kind of thing. That's an abusive death. This one, this one is, is about being judged and, and, and then you're dying. They knew that this cross meant dying. And he looks out at the crowd and says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Now, I think it's interesting. This becomes my favorite. This is where I have trouble with memory. I always know that Luke 9.23 is this, is this verse. And that Luke puts in it daily, whereas Mark and Matthew talk about uh, uh, denying yourself, pick, pick, pick up your cross and denying yourself, but, but it's not this daily part. So Luke adds daily, and I find that interesting because I think that's how frequently we need to die. It means every day we make a conscious decision to die to ourselves, to die to, die to our own desires, to live for him. And I think the reason he's telling us to do this daily is because it doesn't happen automatically and it doesn't happen naturally. I think, there are na- I think there are things that naturally God changes our want-tos. But because he changes our general want-tos and we now want to obey, I think then uh, we're willing to follow him. But then we also then are working and saying, okay, out of gratitude, you told me to follow you and I need to be conscientious of this. Um, I mean... Otherwise, there would be never a lazy time. We there would be never a lazy thought. There would be never um, any ever wrong thing done ever. The sanctification would be boom; it would be complete. If we didn't need this, I think there's this general thing that happens in in justification slash sanctification. There's an instantaneous part of sanctification, but we know it's a process. And I think he's describing the process here. And it could be that when somebody comes to Christ, they take, uh, that God takes an addiction or a taste or something like that away. Could be that there is a habit that's removed. But the reality is, I think we, I think, he's, I think it's why he's telling us this, there needs to be a conscious decision daily to die to self so that we follow him, so that we can find our life in him. So then the last thing he's asking us to do is then there's this follow me. Well, will we follow him? By serving others. Will we believe and obey Jesus? As we die to the self-centered life and begin to live for Jesus, we will experience radical change as we give our lives away for the good of others. I would like to talk more about that, but we got to go on so I can finish so we can you know, go home today. Um, but maybe like Wednesday, if somebody remembers anything, maybe we can remind me and I'll tell you more. Um, under this dying to self, there's dying to the self-centered life. Next, we see a death to, death to self-serving life. So in verse 24, he says, For whoever would save his life would lose it, will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And it occurred to me, I've seen this before, and I think we ought to see if we could do is it, I was in a mall one time, and there was a marquee as you went into the mall, one of those indoor uh, bulletin boards uh, or uh, billboards. But, I mean, you know, it's a marquee thing that you could walk up to. But on it, some church uh, had, like, their logo or whatever. And then it said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses him for, or forfeits himself? I think at the mall entrance would be a great place to have that Bible verse. What he, I think he's explaining here is that your life is set free through the gospel. So that you simply see death as your reward. The, that we could be like Paul and say that it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This 25 puts our worldly pursuits in perspective. There is no profit in all the world's possessions if one loses his soul. There is nothing that a man can give for his soul. I think then this begs the question, what is it you're willing to lose for life in Jesus? And, and I think this becomes challenging because I do preach grace. I know what grace is and I teach you about grace and I try to remove from you legalism and understand what grace is. So sometimes I am, I'm, and I'm not talking about you here, I'm talking about me, I am guilty of then relying or um, taking advantage of grace. These are my imperfections, but I know that he loves me. I know my doctrine. He loved me. He can't love me anymore. These are my imperfections, and they are what they are. Boom, I'm done. You know I got those, that issue, but chances are good I'm not the only one in the room. So what, get, what the, where this gets hard, these are all, I think they're all hard verses, um, is what, what is it you're willing to lose? What are you willing to lose for Jesus? I think the reason this is troublesome is I think David Platt is right. We want a, we, we want a Kidding Loggins Jesus. That's why we put his pictures up in the churches. We want a middle-class, white, American Jesus who would not ask us of anything we don't really want to give away. If I got a, if I got a, a bad habit and the world knows it's bad, let's take smoking. Smoking you know, used to be very acceptable and now it's kind of... I, I would hate to be the one with the smoking thing because you would feel bad everywhere you go. And, hey, I'd be one to make you feel bad. But if you knew, but if you knew that, and you said, okay, I'm coming to Jesus, I better quit my bad habit. That's one thing. But are you willing to give up more than, the, like, the worst habit you have? Are you willing to give up, like, an attitude? Something that's been ingrained in you. Something that you've been holding on to. Something you use as a crutch because of whatever. Back there. You know, something in my past. Therefore, it entitles me to have this attitude. Are you willing to give that up? Are you willing to lose it to find life in Jesus? What about a habit? What about your possessions? You know, I, and I, I claim I don't care about possessions at all. Well, that is until I start thinking about one particular thing, and then I got to go do it, you know, whether it be in my motorcycle or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. I mean, and then, like, nothing's going to, you know, bring a fix to that until I'm done, uh, until, until it's bought or purchased or shined or whatever and and really i am i think you recognize 
how sloppy I am that I'm not really materialistic in, in that sense. But I have issues with that as well. So none of these things are foreign to me, and I don't think they're going to be foreign to you. But what about, if it's not your possessions, what about your money? I mean, whatever, that could be a possession. But what about your money? Do you give freely? Do you give generously? Or do you hold on to it because you're worried? You know, and I, I talk about, I was raised by parents who grew up through the Depression era, and they knew what it was to be poor, and they were, they were determined to never be that way again. I can tell you all kinds of stories why why that's the case, but sometimes people do that, and then they're unwilling to give to God. They're unwilling to give to the people who need the help. They're going to be tight with it because they don't want to run out of money. They don't trust him for that. Are you willing to give up your status? Are you willing to lose status? What does that mean? You know, for, for, a, for a kid in school at this point to proclaim Jesus could cost him a status, could cost her a status. There may be losing friends. There, there are assumptions made about Christians and it can be a cost now. Today, in today's climate, a businessman may lose status instead of gaining it by associating himself with the church. What about your free time? What about your, are you willing to give up free time in order to, are you willing to lose it in order to gain a life with Jesus? Would you be willing to serve him and instead of having your free time? And then it goes to hobbies, and it's just on and on and on. What is it you would be willing to lose in order to gain life in him? The reality is we should be proud to be identified with Jesus and willing to mention his name wherever we go, no matter what the cost is. And we should remember how he paid for us with a price. We should cherish him as he cherishes us. May we continually die to self so that we may live for him and bring glory God. May we be witnesses to others about our humble King and His expanding kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.